0: If you would, would you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 50. Psalm 50 is where Yahweh is addressing his people and correcting their misunderstanding of worship. It's quite instructive for us. We see it begins that it is a psalm of Asaph, Asaph as really an unknown individual to us, other than the few times that he's mentioned, he was placed uh, over the song service after the ark had been brought back to Jerusalem. And you can read of that in 1 Chronicles chapter 6. And so he had something to do with the music and leading the music in uh, the ancient worship service. And so it's appropriate that this psalm comes through his pen And as we look at this psalm, a few things uh, to think about in terms of worship, just to ask a few questions to begin with is, how do we worship? Does how we live our lives impact our worship? And if we can say that worship is what we do when we gather in the corporate worship of it on the Lord's Day, Does what takes place Monday through Saturday impact what takes place on Sunday? Well, the psalm is going to address that. It's going to address something else. And we sometimes ask the question, does theology matter? Well, of course, theology absolutely matters. What you believe about God matters. It's a matter of life and death. But does our theology impact our worship? Can wrong views of God steer us in the wrong direction that receives from God a rebuke? Well, the Psalm will address that. So let us hear this Psalm 50, beginning in verse 1. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks. And summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes, or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him. You keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then. You who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is the word of God, and this is a heavy word. We know that this is, comes from the pen of Asaph, but this is God's word to his people. you notice the division of it. It starts off in verses 1 through 6, speaking of God introducing himself as one who comes in judgment. And the weight of the psalm begins by identifying this one who speaks. It is God, the mighty one, God, the Lord, Yahweh, You see, right from the beginning in verse 1, there are three names, three divine names. The Mighty One, that is the Warrior, the All-Powerful, the Conqueror. God, Elohim, is speaking of God's rule over things. And then Yahweh, you notice the capital letters of Lord. This is the covenant-keeping God. So this is the mighty one. This is the one that is sovereign over all. This is the one who makes covenant and is known for his steadfast love. It is he who is speaking to his people. He has authority to speak as the one that created all things. We have the obligation to listen. Do we ever think about that? That God is creator, Has the right to speak to his creation, and we are obligated to listen. So he introduces himself this way. And introducing in this trifled way also speaks of his majestic glory, and it must make us pause and stop and reflect who it is that's speaking to us. This is the God that created the heavens and the earth. This is the God that holds all things together. This is the God that is sovereign over all things that take place. It is in his providence that we are living right now. This is the God that is speaking to us. And he wants to say something to us about worship so he summons the entire earth. And it, uh, how, how much of the earth is, is required to listen? Well, he, it's from those that will reach the rising of the sun to the setting of it. So that is to say the, the whole earth is to listen. By the way, all nations are commanded to worship God. All nations will be held responsible. And so he addresses the, the earth. It says that he comes out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. God shines forth, and it's the, it's the picture in verse two of his visible presence that comes out to speak from Zion. In verse three, notice the description of God. Continue, our God comes; he does not keep silence. Our God is one who speaks. Our God is one who has revealed himself. But he's not like you and I. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. We we have such a superficial view of God. We think that we can toy with God. God is not one to trifle with. He is a devouring fire. He is absolute holy. And the fearfulness of the Lord is emphasized here. So look at the picture. These three divine names of God. The the beauty of His majesty comes forth. He doesn't hold back. He's a devouring fire. This is the picture that we see of God in verses 1 through 3. And then verse 4. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. So when we think about a judge and how fearful it is to sit in a courtroom before a judge, knowing they have the power over you, that power that we see in an earthly sense is nothing. This is the God that created the universe that is calling down to judge. He is judge over all of the earth and he is going to judge his people we see. And so he says in verse 5, gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. That's pointing back to uh, the wilderness generation in which the book of covenant, we see that in Exodus where God commands them in the moral law of the Ten Commandments, then gives them the judicial law, how Israel is to be governed. And they say, all that you tell us we will do. And Moses in ceremony pours blood over them, and they make covenant with God, saying, we will keep these things. So God is now narrowing down to who it is that he's speaking with. Those that have said We keep your covenant. We will do all that you have commanded us to do. So he's addressing his people. He goes on to say in verse 6, The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Amazing statement. Not only do you see that God is judge over all, And that we see here that he has summoned all people, and specifically summoned his covenant people. But there's an amazing statement about God, is that nature itself declares his righteousness. Don't miss that. We often see that the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1 tells us that the invisible attributes of God may be known. But here it tells us the heavens declare his righteousness. It's an amazing statement. But look at who it is that is our judge. For God himself is judge, and it is the heavens that declare this God's righteousness. So what right does God have to judge me? Well, God is creator. So he has the right to judge his creation. We owe him obedience. He Speaks here, we see, and summons the entire earth. I think one that can summon the entire earth and that is a devouring fire has the right to judge. But notice this what it says He is righteous. You know what righteousness means in this context here? Is just weights and measurements. His measurements and his weights are absolutely perfect and just. In other words, the judge that is coming is one that is perfect. If I judge you or you judge me, we're doing it from a place of sin. Even when we're right. When God judges, he judges according to his holy standard, which is absolute perfect weights and measurements he is perfectly righteous he is perfectly holy he is undefiled so his measurement is absolute perfection he will judge us according to his standard that's an amazing statement that takes place as you see that this is all coming from Asaph's pen to describe God but then beginning in verse 7, it takes a turn to where now it is God actually speaking. So the first six verses, Asaph introduces us to God. And then from verse 7 on, it's God speaking. All of the descriptions that we have been given, now he comes to speak. In many ways that could be very Terrifying because God is going to judge their sacrifices. Now look at it, verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. So who is bringing the witness, being brought to the witness stand against the people? God Himself. God says Himself that He will testify. Against his people. The reminder is this as I am God your God. Now here's the 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 truth that we have to recognize about worship. I can't judge your worship. But who can? God can. If worship is a matter of the heart, which we see it is here, who knows the heart? God, you cannot peer into my heart. I cannot peer into your heart. So God here brings his people that are actually actively worshiping him and reciting his word. And he says, it's me who's going to now testify against you. That should set us back for a moment, shouldn't it? That it's God that looks into our heart. That's what he's saying to his people, that God is going to testify against them, and that's only something that God can do. Now, notice how he corrects them in verses 8 through 11. He says, I'm I'm going to testify against you, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. I'm not judging you for going through the motions of it. I'm not correcting you for offering sacrifices like you're supposed to do. They were continually giving sacrifices, just as God had instructed them to. He's not correcting them on that. They were actually fulfilling those things that God had commanded them to do. But notice what it is. They're giving something to God as if they had contributed, contributed something to God. That's the issue. That's why he says, um, those things that you give, uh, they're mine anyways. Those things that you offer, those are mine. I, I own them. I created them. I sustain them. I cause the grass to grow that feeds them. I bring the water that grows. All of those things that you're giving, they're mine. You're just giving me back that which is already mine. Look at what he says in verses 12 and 13. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Does God grow hungry? Does God grow weary? They seem to be offering these things as if God benefited from them. As if what they brought to the table was something that God needed. That God was dependent upon. That's a powerful statement here that we see here. We don't contribute anything to God's existence. We don't contribute anything to God's well-being. We don't contribute anything to God that makes God God. He owns everything. So what we give back is His already. So, what was the problem with their worship? They had a misunderstanding of who God is. They did not truly understand God. And so he corrects them. He says, I don't, I, uh, that's not what I need, as if you're giving me something. So, verse 14, he tells us what we are to do offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. And so God corrects them in what their worship is. And in worship, this is what he wants. So does he depend on these things? No. doesn't depend on them. But this is what he corrects in our understanding of worshiping him. They were worshiping him out of the abundance of that which they had which was not a true sacrifice. They were worshiping according to just giving God thanks, thinking they were contributing something to God. And you compare this, they're giving God something they think will contribute or maybe gain God's favor upon them, but God corrects them and says, I actually don't need anything. Look what he says in verse 15. He says, This, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me, which means this. Actually, it's not me that's dependent upon you, but you. You are dependent upon me. They did not know God, God was not needy of their sacrifices. There's something beautiful about this, though, in that God says, I own a cattle on a thousand hills, which is to say that he owns everything. If God owns all things and called them to sacrifice, what does that mean then? If God owns all things, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he calls them to sacrifice the cattle, what does that mean he demanded sacrifice, but God also provided the sacrifice. An amazing thing, you think of Abraham before he's going to slay his only son. And such faith he shows. In Genesis 22.8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God demands sacrifice, but he's the one who provides the sacrifice. Do we not have a picture of this in Christ? That God sends his only son to pay the price that we could not pay? Now, you consider our call to worship. We worship God in the name of Christ, the Lamb that taketh away the sin of the world True worship flows from a heart that has experienced his grace and now in thanks praises our triune God. What we are asked for is this, is thanksgiving for what he has done. That is the heart of our worship. Because thanksgiving means this, I'm completely dependent upon you. I have received your good gift, and I'm responding with thanks. All I can do is respond with thanks, and that is our worship. I don't bring anything to the table, but I can bring thanks for what God has done for me. What has he done? He sent his son So what of our own can we bring? We bring a thankful heart for Christ. That is what God requires of us in worship, just as he required it of his people then, that we respond in thanks to him. He addresses his people first that had a wrong view of God. Verse 16, he addresses the wicked. Now, I I think this is not a separate group of people, But it is those that would claim to know God he's addressing here. We see in verse 16 that he's addressing the wicked all the way through verse 21. But notice what he says. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? In other words, what business do you have with repeating my laws? So the fact that he identifies the wicked as repeating God's law, his statutes, or to take his covenant, we will do all that you have told us to do, this assumes they are repeating them as if they are special to them, as if they know them. So, when it defines the wicked here, it is the wicked that say, we know God's word, and we love God's word. Let that sink in for a second. It's those that have recite the statutes, meaning they know them. They know God's word. And they've even said, we will do God's word. He's addressing them. And look what he says about them. For you hate... Discipline. In other words, what you say is nothing more than lip service. You cast my words behind you. So you might repeat my words, but you actually hate my words. You might have my statutes coming forth from your lips, but you don't do them and you don't like them, you don't love them, you throw them off. You hate them. Discipline here is is correction. You hate correction. Listen, if you hate correction, then you hate God's Word. Because God's Word, every time we pick it up, does what to us? It addresses us, right? It hits us every time. God's Word corrects us, so to hate discipline is actually to hate God's Word, and just just reflect on that for a moment. If we hate to be confronted on our sin by God's Word when we're reading it, or by God's people using God's Word to speak into our life, we actually show disdain for God's Word, and we cast God's Word behind us. And that's what he's confronting these people, that say we love God's Word. They give lip service to God's Word. And I had to reflect upon these questions in my own life, and we can reflect on them together. When we are confronted by God's Word, how do we respond? And I, I don't mean like, what's our initial response? If Correction's never fun in the moment, but, but how do we respond when we're confronted by God's Word? Because it really reveals our hearts, doesn't it? It reveals our hearts and how we respond when God's Word confronts us. Whether it's just us sitting here with God's Word or or it's in a Bible study or it's a sermon or a faithful brother comes to us and confronts us in our sin. How we respond to God's Word really reveals our heart. Our prayer ought to be That we would long for God's grace to receive his word, even in discipline. And we receive it in discipline with thankful hearts. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thankful for brothers and sisters that are faithful to your word and will reveal my sin. And he goes on to say, God addressing these people specifically, he says... If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. So this is coming from those that said, we love God's word. But God says, actually, you're involved in stealing, you, you hang out with adulterers, you, you're lying. But if you look at the whole entire psalm as a whole, we see just three commandments here being referenced. But I, I think it's safe to say that throughout this whole psalm, the whole uh, Ten Commandments is being referenced. Uh, both tables of the law are represented in this psalm. And so those that said, we love God's law, we love his statutes, we love his precepts, when confronted with it, they, they, they cast it aside, rejecting discipline, but then we see that they're actually guilty of those things. They, they misunderstood God, and so it affected their worship, but then, when you look at the second half of the table, of, or the second, you know, the second half of the table of the Ten Commandments, it is addressing our neighbor. The first half of the Ten Commandments is how we, how we treat God. The second half is how we treat our neighbor. They're guilty of misunderstanding God and abusing the first and profaning God's name, not fulfilling their vows not having thanksgiving in their hearts when they come to worship. And then the second thing is that they're abusing their neighbors. And God's confronting them on what? How they worship. How they worship. They misunderstand God and their treatment of the worship is is shown here. We must be reminded of these things and that it was on their lips it was from their lips that God's word came and yet God says you actually show disdain for my word and Paul says this in Romans 2:17 and notice the order of Paul how he how he he puts this he says but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of, and truth, and he says you know the law. You know the law. You, you count yourself as a, a light to the blind. And he says this in verse twenty one You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Why you preach against stealing, do you still? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Amazing description that Paul gives of those that would cling to the law. The law would come from their lips. uh, They would know the word of God for it to come from their lips. They would have to know the word of God, but yet what does he say? You who condemn stealing, do you steal? What he says here in verse 18, if you see a thief, you are pleased with him. You condemn adultery. Do you commit adultery? He says here, you can keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. You, You lie and bear false witness. He's speaking again to those that the law of God comes from their lips and they say, we love these statutes. That's who he's addressing. If we put it in Jesus' words, in Jesus' time, the psalmist would call them what? Hypocrites. Those that would say, we love God's word, but actually just put it behind us. He goes on to say in verse 21, These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. What, What does this verse mean? They assumed because God was silent for a time that God was okay with sin, or even allowed it. You know, you think about it, like sometimes when you get caught up in something, you're you're getting away with it. Nothing's happening. God's not doing anything. You think, okay, God's okay with me doing this, you know, that whole grace thing. But now they're, There comes a point where God will rebuke his own. There comes a point where God will not allow it any longer. And he will confront them. You see, let us not misunderstand God's patience with us. Because God is patient with us in our sin doesn't mean He is like us and accepts sin. We do. Whether we want to admit it or not, we all accept it in small ways. You just read Jerry Bridges and you realize we're all guilty of it. They misunderstood his patience. And so this comes, this final warning is, mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. What a severe warning. What a severe warning that God gives. That he lets them know that they would be torn apart. The one who would deliver says there comes a point where I no longer deliver. So what does then God require? Well, we're told how to worship here. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So we're shown here how God wants us to approach worship. Thanksgiving, we're told, glorifies God. Because thanks is the recognition that we are recipients of His mercy and grace. So when we gather and worship, it is to be with thankful hearts for what Christ has accomplished for us. That we're all guilty of being thieves, we're all guilty of adultery, we're all guilty of lying, we're all guilty of murder, we're all guilty of uh, forsaking the Sabbath and dishonoring our parents, but there's one who stands on our behalf that is not guilty. And because of that, we can render thanks to him and have thankful hearts. Because where we know where we are guilty, he is innocent and stands in our place. And that he gives us his righteousness. Is that not something that can cause thankfulness to bubble up in our hearts? Knowing that apart from his righteousness that we would stand all guilty for all of these sins that are mentioned here? But Christ... But Christ was not guilty. Praise be to him. We also see that obedience here. He says to one who orders his way rightly. This is obedience in worship and life. So do we disregard God's word as if God is like one of us? Does our life and the way we live life impact our worship? It says Right here, it does. How we live our life actually impacts our worship. And to this one that offers thanksgiving, why do we offer thanksgiving? Because we have been recipients of God's grace. And why do we live obediently? Because Christ dwells in us and transforms us. Again, resulting in grace. Our thanks. So, if if I'm living obediently, it's because of Christ. It's because of what Christ has done and what Christ is doing in me. So, the one with the heart of flesh that loves God, we see, will see the salvation of God. I just want us to think about this idea for a moment and, and apply this. This is addressing worship. Think how God has called us to worship according to His Word. Preaching, prayer, reading of Scripture, the ordinances, singing. This is what God has called us to do. Now, can you, can you think about this as looking at those things that God has called us to do, just those five very basic, simple things, and saying, that's not enough. We need to add to it. We need to do something bigger than that. God calls us to worship, so we should figure out how God should be worshipped rather than how he tells us to worship. Is that worship of thanksgiving? Not at all. God's worship is very simple. Preaching, prayer, singing, ordinances, reading of his word. thats what he calls us to do in his word. Actually, when we ignore those things, when we take from those things, when we add to those things, it actually makes worship not a Thanksgiving experience, but actually makes worship about who? Ourselves. And not God. You see, a right knowledge of God is necessary for worship. And their problem was that they misunderstood God. They did not have a right knowledge of God. You think of the big theological words we use to describe God? Well, they're all present here in just simple language. God doesn't need us. He's the creator. We're the creature. He's independent. We're dependent. He is life. Our life comes from him. We are desperate and wretched and going to hell apart from his saving us. This is why God says, do I need your sacrifices as if I'm hungry? So does our theology impact our worship? Absolutely. Absolutely. A heart of thanksgiving is a contemplative heart. The heart of thanksgiving is a contemplative heart. I, I look at so many of the big worship services that take place where there's lights. I, you should see some of the bands that play at the churches. They're incredible musicians. It's absolutely horrendous. what they've made a mockery of worship of God. And they do it all because they say, we're trying to magnify God. But actually, instead of just doing what God has said to do, they've tried to add to it as if God needs to be magnified by us. God just says, get get together, sing, read the word, preach the word, sing the word, pray the word, Show the word and the ordinances. That's what God requires of us. And so when we gather, it's a heart of thanksgiving, it's a contemplative heart with singing, prayer, reading, and sermon. And so when we gather, we focus and meditate to prepare our heart. Because in that, God is revealing Himself to us through His word. It's so important that when we approach a time of worship, whether it be the singing, the prayer, or the reading, or the sermon, that our hearts are prepared because our minds wander, don't they? Yes, they do. And here's why. Because Adam sinned, and our brains were affected by Adam's sin. It just happens. That's why we lose focus on things. You know, one thing I love to do is I love to listen to music. And if you know me, you know that I love music. It's one of my favorite things to do is listen to music. And I love to listen to music passively or just have something on. And if music's on, I'm I'm listening to it. But the other day I had to learn about eight songs. And I had heard all eight songs before. I knew them. I was familiar with them. But I had never learned how to play those songs. So when I went to listen to those songs to learn how to play them, do you think my listening changed? absolutely and it was it, it, it was amazing you started to notice things differently because you uh, there's this active listening and when we're singing we're singing these hymns that are to be instructive it's it's very plain that 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 we don't take that approach in so many of the modern christian songs that just kind of mindlessly repeat the same words over and over again and throw in some hallelujahs and some o's and ahs in there. It's more about something entertaining rather than teaching us God's Word. Something else this addresses is worship just perfunctory. They just showed up to do their sacrifices. And, okay, we did what God told us to do. So, is it enough just to gather? okay. Heard the sermon, heard the reading, heard the singing. Uh, we, we, had the, uh, we had a time of prayer, and we saw the ordinances. Is it just a habit that we do, or is God actually addressing us here that there needs to be actually something else going on? A response to his word of thanksgiving. And then finally, for us to just think through And by the way, I've had to wrestle with all of these questions myself. Do we say we love God's word and then show disdain for it in our lives? Remember, they, they had God's law upon their lips. They knew it. They could recite it. Perhaps maybe some of them even could teach it. But when it comes down to it, what do we see? they did not actually know God's word. You can say God's word, you can repeat God's word, you can have God's words memorized, but that doesn't mean you know it. Know it is when it begins to transform our heart and we respond to it and our thankfulness for what God has done. Let us consider worship in our own hearts as we read God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that gives us uh, correction. We know your word is profitable for correction, for reproof. Um, But we're also thankful for the balm of the gospel, that by knowing we fall short in these areas, that that Christ has been perfect in all ways. Christ perfectly fulfilled your law. Christ loved to commune with you. Christ loved to hear your word read and sang. Christ loved all things about your will, Heavenly Father. And where we fall short in loving your revealed will, we know Christ has loved it in our stead. And so we thank you for his atoning work and that it's by his righteousness we are judged. But we do pray your grace to help us in these things that have been addressed in your word this evening. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.